Today I am joined by Elliot Kamenetsky, and I'm really happy to have the chance to talk with you. We have had the opportunity to see each other a couple of times in the last month or so, and it's been great to hear some of your perspectives. And I just wanted to have a conversation about how you got involved in all of this and where you think things are going and what what is all of this <laughs> even. Yeah. So Elliot, you're a psychologist and you've been engaging in some of the gender discussions that have been going on. And I don't know, uh, yeah, I'm just really interested. What's your background and and how did you begin exploring these topics? Sure, uh, sometimes I wish that I had like a more comprehensive journal uh, during the COVID years, uh, a little bit beforehand to know exactly what I learned when and how my thinking evolved on it. Um, but I think what was influential was this kind of habit I have of always trying to listen to both sides of every issue and seeing where, you know, where they agree and, you know, the parts that they disagree, what's underlying that. And I did that with news and I did it with, you know, you know, psychology, everything else. And so I would listen to like liberal side and conservative side for issues. And um, I think as it came to the gender related question, it was something like, you know, something spoken about more on the conservative side and not spoken about so much on the other side is what I, I found. Or like almost like they they would speak about it, but there was like very little point of inter, very little overlap in the conversation. Whereas one side was like saying like, you know, uh, they are they are harming all these children. It's terrible. And the other side saying they're saving the lives of all these children. It's amazing, and all of them are terrible. So like I, I haven't seen a lot of issues that had such polarity. Um, like there are a few. Uh, but I think this one is particularly polarized to the point like that we're not having discussions about it with people who are very important to have discussions with, like the people who are healthcare professionals. You know, like I find more and more that the conversations are getting shut down and devolving into ad hominem attacks and trying to um, really question the motives of people who are asking questions, but I, I think as someone who always likes to ask questions, I'm not gonna make an exception for something that has to do with child mental health, child physical health, you know, something that's so important, you know, in within healthcare. So I, I think as I continued asking questions, like I found like there was a split as well in terms of like individuals who are giving you a lot of fluff and in like kind of um, just very philosophical, very um, sociological in nature about, uh, I don't know, it, it just didn't sound scientific, like the same way we discuss any other treatments. And then individuals on the other side uh, were giving much more in-depth, nuanced conversations, like people at SEGM, uh, Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, uh, GenSpect, like I think they were, you were seeing more data. You were seeing, seeing more uh, sy systematic reviews. Uh, you were looking not just at uh, one country, the country that you're in, but you know, I know Americans like to do that, but realize like there's a whole there's a whole world outside and kind of understanding how it's being understood differently. And I think my sensitivity in that grew. And I I was kind of hit with a tremendous quandary and challenge, which is like, what do I do with what I know? Because I do know that I'm not allowed to talk about it. <laughs> right. But that didn't sit well with me because, you know, I, I don't like needing to be quiet about this. So I started by just talking to my colleagues one by one. And these were people who were very liberal. They had their pride flag on their, uh, 
you know, social media profile. I figure like, and they're brilliant, brilliant people, you know, like authors and tenured professors and, um, you know, really brilliant people. And I, I, I wanted almost to be reassured that what I know isn't true. Like what I know about the concerns related to this branch of healthcare isn't true, such as, uh, you know, the lack of evidence base behind, you know, puberty blockers. Like I wanted to hear how like it's, you know, really there is a tremendous amount of evidence, you know, and but they all like one by one were like, yeah, it's pretty messed up. <laughs> it's uh, It's really a problem. The research is is really not there, but uh, you know it's something that I I really can talk about. Uh, you know I can't let other people know uh, because it's such a politically charged issue, and and that was always like a little bit of a downer. Whereas I thought like okay let's let's get this conversation going, and um, you know they would say like we should definitely be in touch, and then they got very busy with all their other articles or their, all their other commitments and this didn't rise to the top, which is unfortunate. But, you know, I, I think I, I became, became increasingly frustrated when everyone would agree with me, but would say like, you know, more power to you. Thank you for bringing up this conversation. It's so important. And also, you know, uh, you know, best of luck. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, one colleague actually brought it up to his local therapist group, right? So, so that was actually kind of nice that that while I did get a lot of support and confirmation about what I did believe, it was also kind of scary that there is what professionals believe and what professionals are, um, you know, being like said to believe or understood to believe this idea like there's this total consensus mm -hmm. of all the doctors and medical organizations so if you have like uh you know the american psychological association or the association of behavioral and cognitive therapies and they say like oh they're all in agreement when all of the members don't agree like is that really a consensus so then i started talking out my speaking out about it myself i tweeted about it and you know, people, I was surprised that I wasn't getting a lot of pushback. Uh, I was told because I'm relatively unknown. So, <laughs> uh, so maybe it's good to be so not so well known, but, you know, I, I talked about it. I was getting a lot of positive feedback for, you know, being so brave to speak about it. And, you know, I brought it up in the largest uh, Facebook group, in for psychologists or people in private practice. Mm -hmm. And um, um, it was deleted and I'm currently blocked from there. Uh, it wow. was brought up in my local OCD group and they did facilitate the conversation. And a lot of people would just say things like, I'm glad you brought this up, looking forward to the discussion. Um, but it wasn't really, uh, you know, and a lot of, you know, there were some people Mm -hmm. who did bring up objections to the concerns that I raised. But, and these people like touted themselves as experts, but like what they were saying was like very misguided. Uh, so for example, um, you know, someone, someone would say like, yes, you know, while you're concerned about puberty blockers for, um, you know, trans-identified or gender dysphoric kids, they also give it to, um, you know, kids with precocious puberty, right? So it's like, okay, that makes sense, right? Like, like you could take that on face value, right? But if you know a little bit more, you know that that's kind of very misleading because mm -hmm. precocious puberty, kids will take it, they'll stop it, and then they will have a natural puberty and, and move on. Whereas at that point at which kids with uh, precocious puberty would stop it, people with, um, you know, kids with gender dysphoria will start it and then will almost inevitably go into cross-sex hormones. Mm -hmm. So you're bringing almost a totally irrelevant point. Mm -hmm. And I don't even think she knew that. Mm -hmm. I think, she, I think you know, so, so that's why I'm going to continue speaking up about it and having these conversations. And I think we're at a point where it's welcomed and 
you know, less uh, chilled. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really, it's really an interesting phenomenon to be among professionals who will privately agree with you, but publicly refuse to and keep representing something that they know, and you know that they know to be false, at least by omission, by failing to engage in the conversation. And there's something yeah. really strange about that self-censorship and how it allows something like this to continue to perpetuate. Yeah, I totally agree. And when did you first start to notice that this was an un- kind of an untouchable issue? I think I always kind of knew that it was untouchable. I mean, like you would look at, you would like see the news about uh, maybe like trans activists Mm -hmm. and, you know, people being injured for for bringing it up. And you would Mm -hmm. see people being harassed and doxxed and going after people's professional license. So like, I would listen to a lot of podcasts um, and I would watch the news and I was on social media and I would see the treatment of people who would bring it up. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, some from a uh, more from a, a feminist perspective, some from a medical perspective, like it, it it's a very wide ranging sociological issue. Mm-hmm. So I think um you know, I would see how they're treated and I realized like, hey, mm-hmm. you know, this is not, this is like verboten. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was in um, graduate school, when I started graduate school in 2019, mm-hmm. I was in a human development class and, mm-hmm. or I guess it was a, it was lifespan psychological development. And they first, we first, this was the first time I heard about the trans child. And Mm. it was in another student's presentation, but there was this way that it was welcomed and, and embraced and kind of celebrated by the professor and the other students that I felt kind of uneasy about it, but I didn't feel like I could speak up. I didn't feel like I could voice what was making me uneasy. And so I kind of just let that lie. And that was a really weird moment. And then a year or so later, when I was studying human sexuality in the same graduate program, they had us watch or our professor had us watch a documentary and it was about how trans people have always exist and existed and that, and very specifically about the trans child. And Mm. I thought this was really interesting because this seemed to me to be like, it felt like this moment where I'm, I'm thinking, did I miss something? Like, did I miss something? Was there a cultural conversation that was happening where we discovered this? Because this is a very different way of talking about these things than we, than I remember. And so mm. I was left with this kind of like looking around for confirmation. Like, did I, can you tell me the piece that I'm missing, but not feeling confident enough to say, no, I think you're, you're, right. you're doing something wrong here. But it feels yeah. like there was this accelerated cultural jump where we just suddenly started thinking about gender in a new way. And did you kind of have that sense as well? And was that after you were already completed with your training and were you already working in the field when this started to happen or? I think like, I think like maybe 2016, 2017 was around when it, when it started like that uh, sharp increase. Mm -hmm. And you know, myself and so many people in my training would say like, you know, in the course of my whole training, you know, so imagine 2011 till let's say in the clinic, 2015, 2016, they didn't come across one child who had gender dysphoria or trans identified or gender questioning. And now like the same colleagues are saying like, oh, like half my practice is, you know, kids identifying as trans. So I think, yeah, like, like that's pretty astounding to have like such a shift. Um, yeah. So, so like when that happened, like, I, I, I don't know, maybe it came along with Trump. <laughs> like, I feel like he stirred the pot and all the, you know, like a lot of, there was a lot of uh, exacerbations of like people's 
I don't know, priors, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Like, I feel like it kind of made the country crazy. That's interesting. And COVID certainly didn't help out there. Like an accellerant. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was like it was like a living fuel of all mm-hmm. fires, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So I think, including, you know, I, I think this came along with that, like mm-hmm. around that time. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think he brought out the activists and people. Mm-hmm. And he brought out the poli- the politics in people because suddenly people who were very, you know, detached from politics, you have a celebrity in office. So it's like everyone gets into politics, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if everyone should be into politics, right? And have such strong opinions. And I think like everyone dug their heels so deeply. And I think when you have politics and science, they're not always the best bedfellows. So I think like I do, I don't know if there's been research on this, but like, I do think there's some connection hmm. between like that era of time when things got kind of wonky. Well, it does seem like it sort of marks a point at which people were more comfortable, I guess, expressing that polarization and yeah. that polarization itself is kind of the process that is has been taken to a lot of different areas you know you got it in gender you've got it with race all kinds of yeah hot but covid was hugely polarizing yeah and i think maybe for the first time you would have the sentiment that having conversations themselves meant you were colluding with evil right like even engaging with any maybe centering opinions Mm-hmm. Like that was itself evil. And maybe when like two sides can't have conversations anymore, like you get so detached from reality mm-hmm. you know, because like there's no middle ground. So so this idea, like when you're hearing two sides of everything, like the part they agree on is usually the facts, mm-hmm. right? Like if, if like, and then there's the interpretations and the uh, sequelae of each of them. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's maybe where they differ. But now, like, we can't even agree on, like, facts. And I think mm-hmm. that's that gets very dangerous because facts matter. And especially when it comes to, you know, healthcare, they really matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're that that's a really good point about the two sides can't even talk to each other. And that's where we get cancel culture. And and mm-hmm. <clears throat> I I was shocked when I was told, and I've, I've talked about it a lot. So people have probably heard me say this before, but when I was told in my uh, master's program that they, the faculty and the administration were aware they were not training counselors who were going to be able to work with the Trump supporter. This is what she said, the Trump supporter, we can't work with them. We, and, and it, it seems like such a shocking blind spot for people who are teaching applied psychology. Yeah. To say we can't we can't even talk to you if you think in a way we don't like. Yeah, I I, I think that's so so dark. Um, and I was very inspired by your story in terms of like coming out myself, mm. how you uh, really spoke out um, and didn't take the garbage from your program. Mm. I thought that was like really that was very inspiring for me. By the way, thanks. And, that's um, awesome. Yeah, I I think Atul Gawande, who's like a a wonderful author about medicine, talks about like the really the foundation of, he spoke about a story where like this drunk, racist, uh, awful, screaming at all the nurses and being terrible, came into the ER, was like the exact person you would never, ever want to ever see in your whole life. And uh he said like what does it mean to be a doctor is that like you care for them regardless like you are the person who's going to totally disregard all of the crap and see a human being mm-hmm. who's suffering behind it mm-hmm. and using your skills to help that person and I think like I, I don't think mental health is any exception like I, I think if anything, like we understand why people act the way they do and believe what they do and emote the way they do. So if anything, we should be the most understanding and compassionate people. So it's like so backwards. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really well said. And I think that it kind of gets back to the question of why people right now are so afraid to talk about some of these things. And there's understandable reasons why they would, not that it's good that they won't. It's We would all like, I, it, this is one of the things that not necessarily on the professional level in terms of this field, but just in DEI trainings, I, I end up talking with people who are not sure if how to navigate this. I want to speak up. I want to. I want to say this sounds wrong, but I also want to keep my job and I need to make a living. And and I or or I want. I don't want to upset my friend group. I feel like I'll be an outcast if I start talking about this because everybody's so strongly for these kind of social justice concepts in this particular way. And there's a there's a, a degree to which I think we want people to shrug this stuff off and start speaking frankly and openly about it because that will help to reduce the the mystique that it has and the power that it has if everybody who feels this is wrong will just say this is wrong yeah but you have to understand that each individual is making their own choices that make sense for their lives and have some compassion for the fact that it's difficult for it's difficult for people to overcome those things and i think that for for me, if I had been on the internet more, if I'd been in social media circles more during the time when I was in school, I might've been too intimidated by mm. hearing all of the other people, all of these opinions and by fearing reputational damage. If yeah. I felt like I had any reputation to, yeah, right. to uphold and it was kind of the internet was this. So there, I guess I'm kind of wondering what are your thoughts around all these social pressures and how they interact to keep us kind of censoring ourselves and flattening ourselves to some degree? Yeah, great question. Um, So it brought up a few ideas. One is like when I started speaking up about it in various forums, um, you know, a lot of people would thank me for saying something and would say like, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable. Like, I hope you're not judging me. Mm. that I'm not willing to speak out. And I said, yeah. like, hello, I, I didn't speak out for 38 years of my whole <laughs> life, right? And suddenly I say something, yeah. I'm not going to judge you at all for not. Right. Um, but I could tell you part of my own process that helped me uh, speak up. Um, and I think for me, and, and I actually am doing a series about people who speak up about things or who use their free speech. And I resonated with this idea of like, when you feel that you are um, self-censoring mm-hmm. and you are just going along with something, like it, it felt very um, deflating, mm-hmm. depressing. Uh, you feel like powerless. And it was like, I wasn't able to, it was like hurting my sleep at night. And I would just like distract myself, mm-hmm. uh, maybe by listening to like more and more podcasts about it, right? But I felt like so, um, you know, so I felt terrible. Mm-hmm. So, so I think some people might have more sensitivity to that. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but ever since being able to say the truth as I see it, to you know, to really anyone. Like, I I don't think my life has ever been better. Mm. So like, you know, at least see that there's a carrot at the end. Like if you're struggling to say what's on your mind and, you know, like there is, it is the most freeing thing ever. Mm -hmm. So, um, and also I think there's this concept of, um, it's like a, it's this Latin phrase, like, be at justicia, something, something like, let do the right thing. And, you know, whatever happens, happens. Uh, or or do, it's a, let justice be served, though the sky may fall. Mm. Like, you don't necessarily need to worry about the consequences, per se, of doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you should focus mostly on doing what you know to be right. And, and not saying that that's a, not a, that's not an easy process and it's important to, to question yourself, but I think like you shouldn't calculate so carefully 
the consequences of doing something that you've established and known to be right. Um, and as Jordan Peterson says, whatever outcome comes of telling the truth or being honest is the best possible outcome. Mm. And I think that's like a, a really powerful way to live. Mm. Those are really good examples of your own process. And the first one, when you're talking about this restlessness and this uneasiness versus the clarity that you have now in communication, it sounds like what I picture when you're saying that is the conflict was internal and you externalize the conflict. So the internal process, you're not having to deal with that inside of yourself anymore. You're not wrestling with your own conscience. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think you made an interesting point about friends. Um, I, I think I think when you're honest, it really provides you with like a helpful filter system between those who actually love you and care about you and those who love this like version of yourself that isn't you. Mm -hmm. So like when you kind of come in touch with who you are and express yourself for, for that, you know, it's kind of helpful mm -hmm. to like not have people in your life who don't actually like you. Mm -hmm. Right. So even if someone's friends with you, if it's not your real self, they're, they're actually not your friends already. Mm -hmm. Right. Even though you may be spending time with them. But I think um, it's kind of a helpful thing uh, to spend time with those people who are actually your friends. How has that been for you since you've been more open? Have you felt like your relationships have been have benefited from that or have suffered from that? I, I never had friends. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> so. I mean, luckily, I would say, for the most part, I've kept all my friends. I think, like, maybe I, as, like, an Orthodox Jew, I live in more of a heterodox, which is kind of ironic, like, a more heterodox world, where, like, people will, I just get that there's a lot more tolerance, mm. which is kind of funny, for, like, different opinions about things, like, maybe there'll be people who will be conservative about one thing and very liberal about others. Mm -hmm. And I've always existed in this world with modern orthodoxy where you have like, you know, let's say orthodoxy and like secularism mm -hmm. and you're kind of straddling this line. So I think I kind of like always existed in that space mm -hmm. where things aren't so clear and things are in life inherently complicated. So I think it was it was kind of natural to me, and I was surrounded by people who were able to wade through the complexities of life. And also, I feel like Jews also uh, there, there's like this culture of argument, mm -hmm. and there's almost like um you could see the beauty uh, that comes from you know, people disagreeing, like, you know, we have the Talmud, like Jewish law, and it's basically like 27 books, like huge books of just arguments that you kind of wade through. Mm -hmm. So I think like being able to uh, appreciate, you know, the being part of a, a group who could appreciate other people's opinions was very helpful. And I didn't lose many friends. I was blocked by two colleagues. Mm. which which I don't like mm. uh you know like uh the person who I pointed out the their misinformation about the puberty blockers mm -hmm. ironically blocked me oh that it's that's there is some irony there yeah and then this individual wrote me like this really respectful letter after I I went I was open in my group about my concerns you know, and someone who's like demonstrated such willingness to engage and mm -hmm. who on the other side, I'm like, awesome, finally, uh, like a WPATH expert wants to talk to me. Mm. And then I scheduled the time we agreed. Mm -hmm. And the day before, um, she said, there's no point in talking. Mm. I don't know what happened. And then canceled the appointment and blocked me. Mm. And I was like, uh, it, it, it still feels gross, like mm -hmm. uh, you question whether or not you're a creep, 
you know, like, because, like, blocking you associate with, like, stalkers, yeah. right? You know, yeah. so, like, for someone who who's so, you know, averse to you that needs to block you, like, you question yourself, and I think it's fine to question yourself, but it was, um, it still felt, felt not great. Yeah. And one of the topics I cared about, mm. hopefully one day we'll be able to mend ties, but if you're watching, please forgive me for, <laughs> for being honest. I think that's really nice that you point that out about questioning yourself. I think that's really, I think it's really healthy. It's a healthy part of the process of examining, am I wrong before you decide I'm wrong? There's this smug, you know, righteousness that, that defies that kind of self-questioning. And I think that that's where you're running into blind spots is if you're just too quick to know that you're right. But, yeah. you know, questioning yourself as a part of that is I think it's really, I think it's a very healthy thing. I'm with you. And so what do you see if we were to kind of get concrete about the gender issue, what's going on right now with treatment? What do you see as specifically wrong and and how should it be rectified? How should these perspectives be changed in order to come online with something that's healthier for people who are dealing with gender dysphoria? Um. Okay, that's that's a great question. What I will say is that number one, professionals need to um, be able to to speak about it, and I mm -hmm. think they need to be protected. Um, sorry, my nanny just asked a question. Yeah, not today. No. So professional debate and the ability for for professionals to have productive discussion that is not there's nothing taboo we can actually discuss pros and cons yeah. of different treatments so so that's the first thing is that mm -hmm. uh i i made a post about um about how you know i was told by this doctor that you know he's really concerned about everything but can't say anything i'll be fired in a second so i think it'd be great if there was some sort of like legal protection for medical professionals to opine about medic medicine and not be able to be fired. I think that would be really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, so so that's number one. Uh, number two, I think we need to be evidence-based in our practices. So, you know, I, I think I think, you know, it's important to follow the international consensus that you know came before us like if we haven't yet as in the united states conducted our um systematic review like you would think we would at least rely on you know the number of countries that already did and came with a very similar conclusion so i i think um i think recapturing this area of medicine and mental health from activists to scientists, I think will be, you know, scientists from regardless of where you're coming from, but it has to be based in, in science and research and meaningful research, um, such as like mental health outcomes, long-term mental health outcomes, and without any kind of censorship that, um, that tends to get in the way of it. Mm -hmm. Where do you see accountability lying most in this? If if we can look at this as a as a health scandal or a, or, I, I mean, policy scandal. What it, what is the who's most accountable? Is this a psychological issue? Is this an issue of medical ethics? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I think. There are certain actors who have acted particularly egregiously mm. in the realm of research. And I won't name names, but like, for example, um, you know, if you're doing research and, you know, it's best practices to pre-register the measures you're going to report on. Mm -hmm. And if you collected data on anxiety and depression measures pre and post, but you didn't report on them, mm -hmm. like I 
in a study about the impacts of a particular gender affirming care, um, I think that is very unethical mm -hmm. and very dangerous, right? Like why is that information being omitted? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think researchers who don't do like a very basic due diligence that any kind of intro to psychology student would be able to like point out major flaws. And, and like, for example, in the Dutch protocol, like when they discuss like the switching the scales mm -hmm. um, such that the it was no longer relevant mm -hmm. uh, in the post scale, mm -hmm. which kind of like, I don't understand how that couldn't have been obvious to them within that Dutch protocol. Uh, so, so I think like that is concerning because I think that really introduced a whole new, um, like a whole new factor mm -hmm. that medicalized much younger mm -hmm. at a point where people have the most underdeveloped frontal cortex. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so I think like, shoddy research practices because things come from the research. Mm -hmm. I think journalists uh, hold part of the blame for, you know, and I think they've since tried to uh, compensate and do better coverage. But, you know, for there's so much like misreporting about studies, right? Like mm -hmm. you'll have a science reporter report on a particular study and totally like not understand the findings, mm -hmm. not contextualize the findings. Mm -hmm. um, and I think also like editors of, of you know, journals and um, news outlets mm -hmm. who will really be very, will, will really gatekeep mm -hmm. the, um, Make sure it's presented in just one way. Yeah, or, or we'll say we're not taking articles mm -hmm. about this. Yeah. Like, like you know, there are people who've been trying to get, you know, journalists who I know who've been trying to get important stories out there. Mm -hmm. But they'll be like, you know, sorry, you know, we need to cover, I don't know, something else. Mm -hmm. so, so I think, like, you know, when you have a situation like this, that's so wide-ranging, mm -hmm. um, you know, the blame is going to be everywhere. And I think the blame also is in, and I'm, while I still understand why people don't say anything, mm -hmm. I think, you know, if you are in a position of power within a particular organization and know that something's wrong, I think not saying anything is a problem, even though I understand why not. Like, I think it was a problem when I spent years not saying anything. Mm -hmm. Like, I like why did I wait until now? Mm. You know, so, like, I guess I'm also to blame, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, so, you know, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of blame to go around. But I, I think, you know, I, I try to focus on, you know, we got to this point. How do we, how do we kind of bring integrity back to this field? Mm -hmm. How do we help the parents? How do we help these kids mm -hmm. um you know and we could figure out blame later but like I think we need to bring honesty to this field mm -hmm. like ASAP yeah it seems like a real uh there's a there's a lot of falling through the cracks that can happen when you have the medical the surgical side of this saying bring us letters from mental health professionals and then mental health professionals saying we will write letters for anyone, just, you just have to self-report. And so both sides are acting like the other side is supposed to be doing some kind of validation of this, that this is the right treatment for this person. And, and both sides are looking the other way. Meanwhile, the, the person is just opting into something that is really life-changing and often regretted. So yeah, it seems, seems like, like a lot of over the accountability. Counter. Yeah. yeah, it's like OTC, like yeah. over the counter medications, um, where you yourself are making that decision, mm -hmm. and it's a big, it's a big one, right? Like, uh, 
I remember like uh, a lot of my colleagues at Furkoff, uh, they were, there was the Parnas Clinic and they were trained on how to do like these very detailed assessments on getting a, a laparoscopic surgery, like, a, you know, where they mm-hmm. tighten your stomach to, mm-hmm. for as a weight loss. Okay. And that was like a very intense, you know, you know, to make sure like they're in the right mindset to get this yeah. topic surgery, uh, you know, band, stomach band, mm-hmm. and they would do mental health and education. And, and it was like a big deal. And this yeah. was for something that was, you know, like, yes, like, it's great they did that. But like, how much yeah. more so when we're yeah. dealing with kids and, you know, who very often have a lot of mental health comorbidities, mm-hmm. physical health comorbidities, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, for them not to get, you know, for, for therapists to openly, you know, be open about the fact that they will give a letter without mm-hmm. asking any questions. Like, I think that is uh, really a, it's a real problem. It's a glaring, um, it, it stands out as it's very, it's a different standard of care. And I, mm-hmm. I can remember as a young mom, I knew another uh, a woman who was a couple years older than me, I would have been in my early twenties. She was probably in her early thirties and she had one child and she wanted her tubes tied. She wanted to be, have permanent sterilization. And mm-hmm. she, her surgeon, her doctor refused because she was too young and she only had one child. And he said, it just wouldn't be ethical. You have plenty of time to change your mind just because you want this now. doesn't mean you'll want this later. And you, you know, there was just, there were reasons he was able to say, no, I don't think, and she probably could have shopped around and found another opinion maybe, but I, just thinking back on that, and now we have teenagers who are able to make these decisions that I, they they will never breastfeed. They will never mm-hmm. breastfeed. They will, they will take hormones that will prevent them from ever becoming a parent. And the fact that we could apply that standard at that time in that, in that situation, but not in this situation is really pretty shocking to me. Yeah, Corinna Cohn put it so well. Uh, Corinna said that at 25 years old, I think Corinna never thought previously that that Corinna wanted to have a child and then said that there's something happened at 25 when... Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. held a baby mm-hmm. and the baby looked in to to the eyes mm-hmm. and that it changed something, something yeah like something went online yeah right and that's yeah. at 25 right so and, it's like um yeah to think that a kid who is not developmentally ready or psychologically or physically or any in any way ready to think about having children could have any idea what they're giving up is yeah. It, it just, it, it defies just basic common sense. Not even, it's not even professional understanding. It's just basic understanding. The kid is not ready to know that. Yeah. Um, I, I totally agree. I, I think you can't cons- like this idea of informed consent, like assumes that there's like an understanding Mm-hmm. what what you're giving up and like when you talk about you know when marcy bowers president of wpath said that all of the all of her patients who um who were given puberty blockers at 10 or stage two will never experience an orgasm yeah like what what was informed consent look like for right. for a kid doesn't know doesn't what know what that is yeah you know that's something that it's a very important part of human relationships that, right. you know, that is not there. And yeah, yeah so it's, yeah. A, it's disturbing. It really There's is. The, the idea of the mature minor, which is mm-hmm. oxymoronic. It just is. Right. It's just, it's not, it's not an insult that you're not mature. You're just not yet. You have, you can't be a, a, a minor and be mature. Yeah. And I think we recognize that in so many ways mm-hmm. i think most of us adults like look at all the things they've been all the permutations that they've gone through in their life and figuring like i went by a different name at a certain point like i was 
call myself Dylan. Oh, right? but Elliot's but such a good him. name. <laughs> I know. And I, uh, it's a, it's a great name, but I, I let it go. You know, there was a point where I was very, very religious uh-huh. and I decided it wasn't for me. There was a time where mm-hmm. I went through so many different identities that I think that's really what adolescence is about. Even young adulthood, mm-hmm. you know, life is about really all of life. You know, you, you evolve over life and the idea of, um, you know, for an adolescent to to make a, a permanent decision that really forecloses identity exploration mm. seems like, you know, obviously a mistake. Yeah. Right. And especially now where they're saying like, um, you know, you don't need gender dysphoria mm-hmm. in order to even have, you know, to, to be trans identified and to get all these medical procedures. We're not talking about someone who's in deep, desperate pain, mm-hmm. right? Because they're saying that's not even necessary. So like for someone who's not in, who's not suffering uh, to say like, you know, we're going to let them have the, we're going to like prescribe mm-hmm. irreversible medications to um, undergo irreversible surgeries, like mm-hmm. seems very, you know, all this seems so like obviously you know, bizarre. Yeah. Elective body so, modification. So you're, yeah. You're kind people. of like, hello, like what, like, you know, we're sensible <clears throat> people. Like mm-hmm. what's going on. It's, it's so confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not like they have great answers. Like I wanted great answers. Yeah. If this is why it's important for like, you know, um, you know, for a non-binary teenager whose parents recently went through a divorce and needs immediately a double mastectomy why this is important very important to happen and that there's a lot of research supporting you know the you know the well-being of that person mm-hmm. make it like, make sense that's what i wanted to hear yeah. like make it make sense but it no one had those answers yeah. you know and usually the answers were if you question this you hate them you yeah, which doesn't make like sense. Like I, I decided I would make my life about child mental health. I have mm-hmm. my own children. You know, I, like, I really care about kids and I care about people. So this idea that, you know, I'm- That you're hate- motivated by hate. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, I think all kids deserve the highest quality of care and in Western medicine- Western medicine is a miracle. The things that we could do and the miracle happened because of the scientific method and because of research and peer review and these institutions. And to throw that away, mm-hmm. I think is a real disservice to, you know, to kids, you know, and to, to anyone who is, who this is not helping. Are you optimistic about where we are now and, and what comes next? Yeah, I'm a serial optimist, so I I have to always keep my optimism in check. But I I do, I think from the feedback that I've gotten thus far, um, like I I think like we're ready as a society to have these conversations. You know, I think the fact that the American Academy of Pediatrics is willing to have, you know, undergo a peer review, it seems like it's going in that direction but I think for me, um, like I kind of focus on not necessarily the outcome as much as like, what do I need to do? You know, like what's the right thing to do today um, to influence a future situation where, you know, everyone gets best, we, we have a better understanding of best practices. practices. Um, so I just focus on the process more than the outcome, but I tend to be pretty optimistic. Um, and I'm guided by having three kids who are now like a boy and two girls, oldest seven. Like I want them to grow up into a society that will let them, you know, be gender nonconforming without being asked whether they're the opposite gender. Like, I I don't want them being taught, you know, in school that you get to pick your gender, like, and 
all these ideologies that really is very confusing and it's kind of religious in nature and it's not my religion and I feel like I I'm responsible to shape the world they're going to grow into grow up into and you know they're going to likely experience psychological distress and medical issues and I want the care that they get to be amazing and based in research so Mm -hmm. I feel like what I do now is going to impact them in the future so I feel like I focus on the now and doing what I think is right. And I'm optimistic about the future. I think you're setting a really good example for them and for other professionals. And I'm really grateful for you and for people like you who come out into this conversation from a place of nuance and not a place of backlash, but just of just careful examination and logic and, and, and it's very heartfelt. And so I'm very grateful for you. Yeah, well, I'm really grateful for you um, because, you know, when I heard you on uh, Stephanie's podcast, mm. like, I, I'm like, that's awesome for someone to to be able to, you know, speak up and to not just go along to get along and get their mm. degree and, you know, to be able to say something. I'm like, why can't I be that person? Like, why do I have to just listen to them on a podcast and admire them from far? And then I realized like you could be that person, right? Like there's there's nothing stopping you. Yeah. And uh, you know, it was people like you that helped help me uh become that. Well, I hope it continues to be contagious as more and more people decide to honor their conscience. So I think that's a great way to put it. Is there anywhere that you'd like to direct people if they want to read? more of your do you do any writing online or is there some place where they can follow you yeah I started a coaching consulting company to help parents who feel totally lost in this situation to get accurate information and support and that's serenityparentcoaching.com excellent well I'll include a link in the description too so thank you so much Elliot it's been great to speak with you today Awesome. Take care. You too.